0: Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's, um, let's pray as we look at God's word together. Father, thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that they are so good at coming alongside us wherever we are in our lives, no matter what um, things are happening whether we're filled with delight and joy or sadness and gloom, that there is a psalm for us that will speak to us and show us your grace and love and mercy. And so I pray, Lord, that this would be your word speaking to us into our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, there was a, a show that came out recently called uh, The White Lotus don't know if anyone saw it. It's on the streaming platform Binge. Uh, it's a bit of a bleak, dark comedy about a Hawaiian tropical resort and the various staff members and the uh, and the um, and the guests who arrive via boat. And this particular series um, looks at a number of different characters. Um, some of the characters that they focus on particularly are a, a uh, newly married couple on their honeymoon uh, called uh, Shane and Rachel, and a single married, a single middle-aged woman uh, called Tanya. Um, and it's a show designed to be pretty cringy which is why I didn't get past like the first few episodes, because I really hate those shows. Uh, but in the first couple of episodes there's this is a particularly awkward scene. Uh, Shane and Rachel, newly married, uh, believe that they're being invited onto the the, um, the resort uh, um, boat, the cruiser, for a romantic sunset dinner. And they get on board only to find that this not very large boat is also being shared by Tanya, the middle-aged woman. And she's actually at the resort not to have fun and relax in the sun, uh, but to scatter the ashes of her dead mother. And so what happens is you have this This couple in love and wanting to spend time together, and mere meters away, Tanya, expressing her grief very loudly, (laughs) and awkwardness ensues because Shane and Rachel just have no idea how to handle the emotions that are being poured out just a few meters away. The scene highlights how many people find it very difficult to know what to do with suffering particularly when it bubbles over from being a private matter to a very very public one we've been reminded each week that the, um, the psalms of ascent were the songbook of pilgrims on the way up to celebrate the main festivals in Jerusalem we would imagine that for many this was a highlight of the year a time of excitement a time of anticipation and so we might expect that the psalms of sent really reflect those emotions, excitement, anticipation, and they do. Lots of them do. But the psalms are a bit like a party host who always has an eye out for the person who isn't having a good time. The psalms here are actually those for those who travel with heavy burdens. And at first glance, it might put, um, to put Psalm 126 in that category because it's about laughter and singing and being filled with joy. But let's look a little bit closer. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2, are actually about remembering a time of sudden unexpected restoration. And then the last two verses are about anticipating a time when that might happen again. It's about the past. It's about the future. But in the middle is a plea, and the kind of plea that only people in deep misfortune ever need to ask. Lord, restore our fortunes. This is actually a psalm for the suffering, for those whose lives are hard currently, for those who carry painful burdens. And I wonder if that's you today. A few weeks ago, Julianne uh, spoke to us about a low-level suffering, the sort of suffering that creeps up on you bit by bit by bit, a sort of suffering that you can't really attach a a particular cause to. You just eventually find that it's there when it kind of bubbles to the surface unexpectedly. To be honest, that's how I felt at the end of last year. After two years of uncertainty, I just didn't realize it because it was so low-level and it built up and crept up. Maybe your suffering isn't low level at all. Maybe actually it's high level. It's overwhelming. It's pervading all of your life. Maybe it's emotional trauma. Maybe it's spiritual darkness. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's a relationship breakdown. It might be suffering that's suffering that's actually quite debilitating. Or maybe for many of you it's somewhere in between. It's not particularly low level. It's not particularly high level. It's just normal being human because suffering is part of life because we know that life is not as it should be but imagine that actually after the last two years all of us need to hear this psalm and what god might have to say to us through it and this is the message of the psalm at its core that no suffering no matter its level needs ultimately to be destructive it will hurt it will sting but it need not destroy. Imagine a bookshelf and a row of books on the shelf. And as you look closer at the books and you look at the titles, and you realize that the titles are some of the most painful things of your life. And then you notice that the books are standing upright, they're not falling over one way or the other. And you think, why? Well, you look at either end, and there are bookends big, heavy, cast iron bookends that are holding the books up. This psalm is less about the content of the books, about the content of the things that are hard, and much more about the bookends, the things on either side of our lives that can give us stability in the present. There's a bookend in the past, and there's a bookend in the future that does this for us, or can do this for us. Let's look at the first one. Let's look at verse one and two. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. You know, throughout Israel's history, there were key moments when all hope seemed lost. Right, 200 years plus of slavery in Egypt. When King David and his followers were um, running away from Saul who's become kind of unhinged and they're fearing for their lives in exile. When Babylon came and took the tribe of Judah away in captivity. When Babylon desecrated the temple and tore the walls down. The Hebrew scriptures are filled with poems and songs and stories that commemorate these moments. And actually, they're also full of praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because when all hope seemed lost, God came and brought Salvation. And so they tell them over and over again when all hope was lost, God came. Surely his love endures forever. He carved a path through the Red Sea. He brought David back from exile and crowned him king. He brought the captives back from Babylon and caused Jerusalem's walls and the temple to re- be rebuilt. God's restoration was so miraculous and surprising that for those involved, it was like being in a waking dream. They literally couldn't believe their eyes that this was happening. Laughter filled the air, the laughter of those who can't believe how fortunate they are. When you're suffering, sometimes it's really hard to think of anything but your present circumstance, the things that are going on right now. But these verses say, if you're suffering, you must remember You must look back because the first bookend is what God has done in the past. And it's being constantly reminded of the delightful joy of his deliverance. You know, every Israelite had those stories embedded in their memories. It was just part of the fabric of who they were as a community. Even if those events had actually happened centuries earlier. So, verse 3 brings that memory to the forefront of their minds. Verse 3 The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The joy of the past has become the joy of the present, despite the current circumstances. Now, let's be a little careful here, right? This is not about putting on a smiling face when actually everything sucks, (laughs) and you're just kind of pretending that's all okay, when inwardly you're kind of dying. It's not what this is talking about. It's not really talking about happiness. Happiness, I think, in our definition is, is more about an emotion that's linked to present events, like I'm happy because I've just got a promotion or I'm happy because I just had a baby. It's, that's, that's happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. Happiness is great, but that's not what's in evidence here. You can't actually be happy and sad at the same time. But you can be joyful and sad at the same time. Because joy, which can look like happiness, actually has far deeper roots. It's not linked merely to a current circumstance. It's it's linked to something far deeper. It's It's linked to a basic truth about your life that is a bedrock for who you are. Joy does bring out smiles, but often those smiles compliment the sadness of your eyes. The smiles of people who can say with conviction, the words of Paul, that godliness with contentment is true wealth. It's a deep, joy is a state of deep contentment and trust in the promises of God. Eugene Peterson has said that joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, but it is a consequence. It's a consequence of remembering that the Lord has done great things for us. Greater than the Red Sea, greater than the exiles returning, we have been saved from humanity's greatest enemies. Death has been defeated, sin has been dealt with, evil has been disarmed. Lord Jesus is making all things new. No wonder the New Testament um, so often evokes the language of things like the Exodus or the Babylonian exile to describe what Jesus has done, to describe the gospel. Because Jesus is the great warrior king who has come to proclaim freedom to those captured by sorrow. Jesus received every misfortune, every cruel blow, He went to the cross not with joy and laughter, but with sorrow and anguish and tears. Even those around him at the cross looked at him and said, surely God has abandoned him. Because that's what it looked like. But then the surprise, instead of being defeated and destroyed by the monster of death, Jesus ripped out its teeth and pulled out its sting. God raised him from the dead. This is a great thing. But why would it fill us with joy? Well, it should fill us with joy because we are like the Israelites who crossed the Red Sea while Moses held up his hands and staff above them. We are like David's men whose own reputations were vindicated when when David was proclaimed king. And we are like the Babylonian exiles whose lives were rebuilt under Nehemiah's servant leadership. In other words, we are filled with joy because we are united with Christ. We are with him. We are his people. What his destiny has become our destiny. His life, our our life. His path, our path. So Paul can say in Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to be united with Christ because I know that if I do, when I suffer, I'll suffer with him. And just as he has risen, I will rise as well. No one wants to suffer. And it'd be wrong for us to say that we should seek it out. It'd be kind of weirdly masochistic or something. We don't seek out suffering but we can stand together in the present because Jesus has triumphed in the past. And now he stands with us, upholding us and granting us joy in hard times. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. So that's the first book end, but we need two to keep from falling over. So the second one, As the pilgrims go up to Jerusalem, they also sing this prayer in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. In other words, God, do again what you have done in the past. Bring again your salvation. This isn't to say that they thought God had abandoned them, that he'd rescued them once some point in the past and then gone away and done his own thing, and praying, now come back again. Remember, they're going up to worship in the temple, the dwelling place of God's Spirit, the place where He is especially present, a powerful symbol that God is with His people. But they also knew the power of prayer. Over and over again, the leaders in their history had asked God for help in times of dire need. And they asked, not because they doubted God would listen, but because they knew He would. Like when my son asks for a drink of water at 3 a.m. in the morning. He knows our answer. And I want him to ask. Because his asking and my responding is an opportunity for us to grow in our love together. What's so important about this is that God gives us permission to ask for him to ease our suffering. On one hand, we know that suffering itself does help us spiritually. It refines us by making us dependent on God as we realize how helpless we truly are. And it draws us closer to Christ as we reflect on His sufferings and how He walks with us in suffering, how God is not distant and away from suffering, but actually has entered in and drawn close to it in His Son, Jesus. But that's not to say that endless suffering is part of His plan. Far from it. He says, we can pray together. Lord, restore our fortunes. Mend our broken relationships. Heal our physical injuries. Bind up our broken hearts. Restore our wavering faith. The psalm actually asks us, invites us to ask big, bold prayers, not little timid ones. I love the image he gives. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Maybe a bit over our heads if you're not super familiar with the geography of Israel. But the Negev is a desert region of Israel, a dry and arid place. And if you go there in the in right now in modern day, and you can normally. I don't know. Uh, you'll find a sign, and the sign says warning, drowning. And if you look around, you'll see nothing but. Dust and rock, (laughs) and you'll think someone's played a joke. But upon closer inspection, you'll realise this is a government sign. It's pretty serious. If you're a local, you know why. Because once a a few times a year, when the rain really belts down in the mountainous regions around, suddenly, without warning, masses of water will rush down the hill, and these little um, these little uh, grooves in the desert suddenly become streams and rivers. It's actually a really dangerous thing. You can get, you can drown in the desert, quite literally. This is the picture that the psalmist gives about what God wants to do in our lives. And the prophet Isaiah picks it up in Isaiah 41. He says, This is God speaking. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn desert into pools of water and part ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Family, God is in the business of making de- gardens in the desert. He pours life and goodness into dry and arid souls. He answers prayers so that people may see and know that only a loving and faithful God could have done this. And this prayer, this request to God, is paired with a promise. Verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. In the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon, actually, for farmers to go out to sow the seed, crying. Hard to imagine. That's what they did. They went out with their seed, and they were just, like, bawling their eyes out as they did it. Why? Well, it was actually a ritual, a ritual. Not common to Israel, but actually lots of the other um, pagan nations around them. Who It was the ritual basically to say that in a way, when the seed goes into the ground, it dies. And it has to die in order for the harvest to come, for flourishing to happen. Something would have to suffer. Something would have to die. The psalmist picks up this bit of kind of general knowledge to say something about God's promises. That even in the darkest hours when all seems lost, in times of tears and sorrow, God has not abandoned you. He will turn sorrow into joy. He will turn tears of pain into tears of laughter. We can pray for God to restore our fortunes in this life. And we know that He will be faithful and answer us and bring us through. But it's true that some sorrows that we have, some sufferings, may well endure to the very end of our lives. But even this does not disprove God's faithfulness. Because death has been defeated, because death is not the end. God's promise is to recreate a world without pain or sorrow and to resurrect our bodies into it. And when that happens, we'll be able to look back and see how every moment of suffering has been woven into this beautiful tapestry of His grace, a tapestry of grace and love, how even when we felt alone, even when we felt pain, God was with us and actually was working good through it ultimately. This is not a promise that all are, that we can pray and, and every pain will go and every problem will be solved. No, actually some things we will live with. But it is a promise that even to the very end, to death, that death is not a barrier to God answering our prayer and that he will do it. How can we rely on this? How can we live as if it's true, this final bookend? Because Jesus was God's seed sown in tears. His own son died and buried in the ground, only to be raised again as a new harvest, with a body untainted by death and suffering. And with him is the promise, as Paul says in Philippians 3, God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like Jesus' glorious body. What an incredible idea. How transformative that not one iota of our suffering will ever be wasted. And not one iota will ever be random. But every bit will be used to show how glorious God really is and how wonderful His restoration will be. J.R.R. R. Tolkien put this beautifully in the words of his character Aragorn right at the end of Lord of the Rings. He said, In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles, the cycles of this world, and beyond them is more than memory. Or, as one commentator said about Psalm 126, this, this psalm is about joy remembered and joy anticipated, so that we can have some joy. In the present. And these are the bookends that together help us to stand firm through suffering. That God has brought restoration and joy in the past, and He will bring it again in the future. So we can be full of joy in the present, even as we may weep. Back to the show, The White Lotus, it kind of illustrates how our society doesn't know what to do with suffering. It's this category that we find uncomfortable and embarrassing. How most people believe that their pain in their lives is a shameful thing that they can't talk about or or let people into. And how the suffering of others can be kind of awkward if it gets too close to us or becomes too raw. But the gospel shows that suffering is not something to be ashamed of. And it's not something to hide away from others. Actually, back to our psalm, this is a song that's meant to be sung in community. This is a song for people in all stages of life, in all experiences, those who suffer and those who currently do not. But they have to sing it together. Those who suffer much along with those who suffer little. And so it assumes that all of us actually need to pray together, Lord, restore our fortunes. And it reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians 6. Carry each other's burdens, and so in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, a life that reflects Christ is a life that puts its arm around a brother or sister in pain. A life that reflects Christ is a life that puts an arm around a brother or sister in pain and prays and pleads with God in this way with them. I wonder what that would mean for our church. I think on one hand it would mean that we all become much more honest when times are tough. (laughs) We would buck the cultural trend to pretend everything is all right or just to kind of leave... Uh, Words of pain to the therapist's office. Even the best psychologists around will say that therapy works best in the context of a community of support and love. That's on one hand. On the other hand, I think it would mean being trustworthy people people who listen carefully when people share their pain, people who are very slow to answer with trite solutions or give glib answers, people quick to offer empathy and compassion. And people who point to the promises of God in Christ and who sing a song of sorrow together, who say, there is much I do not know, but this is one thing I do know, that the God who restored us in the past will restore us in the future and he can be trusted. And it would mean that when everyone needs to pray for an ease to their hardship, or when anyone needs to pray that, there would be someone else who could say amen with them. And you know what? Maybe if we could do that as a church family for each other, we could do it for our neighbors as well. As we become people in the world who know what to do with suffering, who are somehow not defeated by it, who somehow stand firm through it, a community that is not afraid of suffering but has the deep resources to live through it might well be a light to the world. What do you think? I'm going to pray and invite you to spend just a couple of moments to reflect and then uh, we're going to sing and respond with some really apt songs as we continue to worship our God together. Let's pray. Father, you have done great things for us. Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. No matter where we are today, Lord, whether our suffering is light or heavy, whether our burdens weigh us down or if they're okay to handle at the moment, wherever we are, Lord, ease our pain, restore us to life and grant us peace. And Lord, as a community of faith, may we be for each other the picture that this psalm gives us. Pilgrims on a journey, arm in arm, hand in hand, bearing each other's burdens, and so reflecting our Lord Jesus, who on the cross bore our greatest burden and took it on himself, even though it weighed him down to death, so that we might rise with him, united with him, and be a light to the world. Amen.